Lord, we do ask that you would just bless this time as we study your word again. Just be attentive to the things that you want to say to us. A very important chapter. And, and Lord, uh, so as our hearts are ready, uh, Lord, show us and teach us the things you want to in Jesus' name. As we go through the word of God, one of the things that we note is that the word of God doesn't hide the sins of his servants. We can go and look at the book of Genesis. We know that as the Lord called Abraham to be the father of, of this nation, the nation of Israel, that Abraham, through your descendants, you're going to be a great nation. But Abraham, we know, had failures and he had sins that are recorded for us there in the scripture. It was Abraham that lied to Pharaoh, and then later on he would lie to Abimelech about his wife Sarah, saying that she's my sister. He was afraid of them. We also know that he would commit that fleshly act of taking Sarah's uh, handmaiden and, and having a son with her. And so those failures and sins are recorded of Abraham. We also know that his grandson uh, Jacob was one. Jacob means conniver, means deceiver. And Jacob was just that. He would lie, he would scheme, and it's all recorded for us there in the scriptures. As you look at Moses, Moses with the children of Israel, we see that he struck the rock when he was told to speak to the people and to speak to the rock. They were thirsty and they were asking for water. So Moses, speak to the rock and the water will come forth. And Moses took his staff, he was angry at the people, struck the rock twice, and he yelled at the people. And the Lord said that, Moses, you misrepresented me. I wasn't angry at the people. And because of that, you're not going to go into the promised land. We saw last week in Mark's gospel that there was Peter. Peter was in the courtyard of Caiaphas warming himself at that fire, and he ended up denying the Lord three times. He's cursing and he's swearing. And this is coming from Peter, who would be known as the great apostle there in the book of Acts. So God records the sins of the saints, and the reason that he does is that we may learn from that. And Paul, of course, when he was writing to the Corinthian believers, he would say to them that these stories in the Old Testament are written to you and to me, that we may be warned, that they are examples for us, that we may learn from them. And now we're going to see this familiar chapter, chapter 11 of Second Samuel, this um, sin that David commits with Bathsheba and has her husband killed. And so this chapter is going to show us very, very clearly how even godly men or women can fall into sin. And it's also going to show us the terrible consequences of sin. And so we read once again, it happened in the spring of the year that at the time when kings go out to battle, that David sent Joab and his servants with him in all Israel. And they destroyed the people of Ammon and besieged Rabbah, but David remained at Jerusalem. So as we open up the chapter, I want to remind you that as we ended last week in chapter 10, we know that David is being blessed to the Lord at that time. He is defeating his enemies all around him. His name is becoming great among the nations. God has really blessed him. The nation is, is prospering. And David is, is very successful at this time. He's at the height of his reign over the nation of Israel. He's about 50 years old. He's been king uh, over Judah and over Israel for about 20 years now. He's having victory. He's seeing God's hand on him in a tremendous way. And we saw that last week in chapter 10 that David, he wanted to bring comfort to the king of Ammon. His father, Hanan, uh, uh, Hanan's father, Nahash, had brought and showed kindness to David. And so David, when Nahash died, wanted to go to his son, uh, Hanan. And we know that he wanted to bring comfort. He wanted to minister to him. David sending his ambassadors to Hanan there at Ammon. It was the advisors of, Han, of Hanan that said, listen, David doesn't care about you. He doesn't want to really comfort you. He is coming just to spy out the land. He's just coming that he might drop a plan how he might come against you. So Hanan, what he does is he takes the ambassadors that David had sent, and he shaves off half their beards and cuts their robes off at their buttocks to where they're exposed. He humiliated them is what he did. I mean, having a beard 3,000 years ago back in this culture was very important. And to shave off half of it was a humiliating thing. And then, of course, to, to cut off their robes to expose them was as well. And so they would stay in Jericho. David came and saw 
what had happened. And so he prepared for war. And it was Ammon that would then ally with Syria. And Joab and his brother Abishai would divide up the troops of Israel. Joab went after the Syrians and defeated them. Abishai would be defeating Ammon, but Ammon would retreat, and they would retreat there to the city of Rabbah. And that's where things kind of ended. And so winter comes on, they go back home. And see, 3,000 years ago, when they had wars, they would go out to war during the time of spring and summer. They didn't do it in the wintertime because it would snow. They didn't have the footwear that soldiers today have and the equipment and things that kept them warm. So they would go out to battle in the springtime. So all of a sudden, there's this unfinished business of Ammon, and these people held up in that city of Rabbah. And so winter has come, spring has come now. And so David now sends Joab and his servants and all of Israel to go and finish up this battle that wasn't completed. But David stayed behind in Jerusalem. And notice that in verse 1 it says, at the time when kings go out to battle. In other words, what the scripture is telling us is David should have been with them. This was a time in the springtime that David should have been with Joab and the troops in this battle that was taking place. But David decided that he was going to stay behind in Jerusalem. I'll send Joab, I'll send all the men of Israel that they can go out and they can finish this up. And I believe that the reason that David did this is because he had come to a place in his life where he was very complacent. He was very comfortable. Hey, God has blessed me. He has strengthened me over these last 20 years. He has given me rest over my enemies. You know, Ammon isn't any big deal. They'll go and they'll defeat them and and the city will be taken. I'll I'll show up later. But I'm just going to stay back here in Jerusalem. I'm going to kick back. Um, Things are good. And he was in that mindset. He was in that place where he was complacent, I believe. And so that's what David does. And David remained at Jerusalem. Now, here's the thing. We need to, the very first thing that we can learn from this is that when we get to a place in our own life spiritually, when we become complacent or we're just comfortable, and that's, you know, where we kind of park things. That's our mindset. Hey, um, I'm complacent. Things are good. I have no you know, problems going on. I have no great challenges. There's no difficulties. We need to be careful at those times because David should have been out doing battle. And one of the things that we know from our lives as, as we go through life that it can be a battle. In our spiritual lives, it is a battle out there. But in those seasons where it's comfortable, in those seasons where we have rest, and in those seasons where we have a tendency to become complacent, we need to be very, very careful. Because it is in those times that all of a sudden we start thinking, well, I don't really need to engage in in battle. I, I don't really need to be praying. Everything's good right now. My marriage is good, and the family's doing well, and financially we're set, and work is okay, and you know, no problems with the neighbors, you you just start thinking, I don't really need to prioritize praying or being in fellowship or being in church. That's the place of complacency, and that's what can happen if we're not careful. One of the the positive things, if you can say a positive thing about when you're really engaged in doing battle is that you're engaged in drawing close to the Lord, aren't you? I know that when things are tough and and it seems like the enemy is really attacking or there's difficulties or there's challenges, what that does is it causes me to get on my knees and to be praying to the Lord and be in the word and and to be, you know, praying with brothers and sisters, being in fellowship. I know how important that is. So that's one of the things that takes place when we're engaged in battle. But whenever we get into that place of being complacent, we need to be careful. And David here got complacent. He said, you guys go ahead and go. I'm going to stay here in Jerusalem. In verse 2, then it happened one evening that David arose from his bed and walked the roof of the king's house. And from the roof he saw a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful to behold. So David sent and inquired about the woman. And someone said, is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David arises from his bed, he goes out on his balcony, and he sees Bathsheba that is bathing there. Now Bathsheba that's there in his eyesight, and as we go through this chapter, we're going to see that the progression of David in, in committing this sin. 
we know that he commits adultery and also he's going to end up committing murder because he's going to have Uriah the Hittite, Bathsheba's husband, killed. But David, he, he, he gets up, he's there in his palace when he should have been out to war. He sees her and notice the progression here. And I want to note that to you because, you see, when I talk to people who fall into maybe a sin like this when they commit adultery or really any kind of sin or temptation that the enemy brings to you or temptation to to sin and and stray away from the Lord in the ways of the Lord, there's a progression that can go with that for those of us who love the Lord. And we can fall into sin as Christians, certainly. But I don't think that a lot of people wake up one day and say, oh, I think I'm going to have an affair today or I'm going to commit adultery. There's a progression that goes with it. And we see it with David here that we need to take note of. Notice that he saw the woman, and then he beheld the woman. Then he inquired of the woman. And then verse 4, David sent messengers and took her. Then he would bring the woman. That's the progression that we see with David. He would first of all see her. Then he beheld her. Then he inquired of her. And then fourthly, he sent for her. And that's where David fell into sin. That's where he committed sin. You see, we live in a society where, you know, there's all kinds of things around us and things that are are not good to look at. It it, it seems so hard to escape it these days. Billboards, commercials, uh, things that we hear, music that we hear, conversations that, that we hear at work or whatever it might be. But you see, we need to be careful what it is that we're looking upon. And as men and women of God, sometimes that first look is there. But see, David, he saw, and he should have immediately hightailed it and gone right back into his room. He should have got his armor on and said, I need to be out to battle. That's what David should have done. And whenever there are those things that perhaps you see it or, you know, on the TV, you need to turn it off. Or music that perhaps that, that is not edifying or conversation that's taken place that is not pleasing to the Lord. You need to get away from those things. And sometimes the first look you can't, you know, get away from, but it's the second and third and fourth look, and that's where you begin to get into trouble. Because David saw her, and then he beheld her. He saw her, and then he beheld her. He began to study her. He stayed out there and he studied and he stayed and watched for who knows how long David was doing this. And that is a bad place to be. You know, Job would say in chapter 31 of the book of Job, verse 1, I've made a covenant with my eyes. Why then should I look upon a young woman? Job was one, a man of righteousness, God said, a man of real integrity. And he said, I'm going to make a covenant with my eyes that I'm not going to look at a young woman. That is, look at a young woman where it causes me to lust, is what he was saying. David would even know that concept because David would write in Psalm 101, verse 3, I will set nothing wicked before my eyes. In other words, I'm not going to set things before my eyes that is going to cause me to sin, to lust, to fall away from the Lord. And then he would write in Psalm 25, verse 2, or verse 5, excuse me, my eyes are ever towards the Lord. John the Baptist in the New Testament, when we read the Gospels, when Jesus came to the river Jordan, what did he say? He said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And that's who we need to be beholding. It was David that beheld Bathsheba. And we need to behold him. And again, it's a very strong word. Study Jesus. Look to him. And it's in those times where we see things perhaps that we shouldn't have or, or there's conversation that's going on that, that isn't pleasing to the Lord that we need to get away from it. We need to flee useful lusts, as what Paul would tell Timothy. We need to separate ourselves from that. And then we need to behold Jesus. We need to go to him. We need to go to the Lord. But we don't want to put ourselves in a place where we're seeing things and hearing things that is going to cause us to sin. And we need to keep our eyes focused on the Lord and our minds focused on him because the eyes, the mind, it all goes together. And as Paul would write in Philippians chapter 4, meditate on these things that are just and true and and noble and praiseworthy. Those are the things that should be coming in. Renew your mind, as he would say in Romans chapter 12. Don't be conformed to this world. 
Don't keep looking to the world and beholding the world, but be, you know, transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may know what is that perfect and good will of God. So we need to be taking in the things of the Lord. It doesn't matter what we're listening to and what we are looking upon. And David beheld her and studied her. And then he inquired of her, who, who is this? And we read in verse 3, as someone said, Is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? And we talked a little bit about this very briefly last week, that it was Second Samuel, or as we're going to see in Second Samuel chapter 23, verse 34, it's a review of David's mighty men. And one of them that's recorded is Eliam, the son of Ahithophel. Now, Eliam here, who is, you know, the father of Bathsheba, he's one of David's mighty men. It's listed there, and Eliam is the son of Ahithophel. So Ahithophel, granddaughter Bathsheba. And as we discussed last week, Ahithophel, who is he? We're going to learn more about him as we continue through Second Samuel. But he ended up being David's trusted advisor. Matter of fact, as we discussed last week, as David in chapter 9 of Second Samuel, he was showing kindness to Jonathan's son because he had made that covenant with Jonathan, Jonathan who was Saul's son. Jonathan in 1 Samuel and David were very close. Their hearts were knitted together. They were good friends. They really had that brotherly bond uh, that was in the Lord that was very special and very strong. But I think that the one that David personally, as I read between the lines, and of course Jonathan was an important person in his life, but David and Jonathan never really got to really grow in that relationship because David spent most of that time running from Jonathan's father, Saul. But the one I think that David was truly, truly close to was this man named Ahithophel, Bathsheba's, you know, grandfather. And we see that David would write about Ahithophel in Psalm 55. He calls Ahithophel my companion. He's my acquaintance. And we took sweet counsel together as we walked to the house of God in the congregation. And I imagine David with Ahithophel. As we're going to see, the Second Samuel is going to tell us, when Ahithophel spoke, it was like he was speaking the oracles of God. It was like God was speaking. And David was a man after God's own heart. And so David was drawn to Ahithophel. And David, I imagine, was with Ahithophel at night and they would talk at night and david would share his heart i imagine that was taking place and then as david talked to the people as he walked amongst the people to the house of god in the congregation there was a hithophel that was there with him so he was a close companion my acquaintance david was very close to hithophel so here is the granddaughter of Ahithophel. Here is the daughter of one of David's mighty men, and Uriah the Hittite. He's listed in Second Samuel chapter 23, verse 39, as also one of David's mighty men. Now that explains why Bathsheba was there near the palace, because those who were David's mighty men, they had a privileged status. They lived right around the palace of David, and that accomplished a couple of things. Number one, it brought security to David as the king. He's got all his mighty men right there living around him. And David doesn't have security right now because all the men are off the war and David's left alone. The men are gone. And I want to remind you again how there is safety. In the multitude of counsel, there is safety when we're amongst brothers and sisters in the Lord and continue that fellowship. I want to remind us that don't isolate yourself. Sometimes as Christians, I, I talk to those who, man, I'm going to be the lone wolf. I'm going to isolate myself. I don't need other brothers and sisters. I don't need to go to church. I don't need to be in fellowship. I'm just going to be by myself. I'm going to be an island. But there is safety and there is strength when you have brothers and sisters that you meet with and pray with and, and are a part of the body of Christ as you fellowship. I wouldn't encourage I encourage you to continue to do this, to be in fellowship, to be with other brothers and sisters. David was isolated. All his men were gone. So that was a privileged status. It was the goal of every young man, I think, in Israel at this time to be one of David's mighty men. And here are, you know, Ahithophel, his trusted advisor. Here is Eliam that's out to war, Uriah. These men that are faithful to David. 
and his flesh overruled him. And he didn't care. Because he saw her, he beheld her, he began to inquire of her, and now he sends for her. He sends for Bathsheba. And that's how terrible the flesh can be and how strong the flesh can be. Hey, I don't care if these people are linked to me in my life. This is what I want. And that's what's so terrible about sin. That's what's so terrible about this sin. I've talked to people that they committed sin or they've committed this kind of sin, and all of a sudden they realize what they have done to the people that were linked to them in their lives. The sadness, the sorrow, the devastation, the pain that they have caused others because they were so wanting with lust to have that thing that they were going after. It could be with another person. It can be with drugs. It can be with alcohol. It can be with a number of things. And that is the thing about sin, is that when you commit sin, you hurt a lot of people. And if you ever get to the point of, well, I'll never hurt anybody, nobody will ever know, you're deceiving yourself. Because you are going to hurt a lot of people. And the people that you love, if you fall into sin, and here David is going to hurt a whole lot of people because of his sin. And so, verse 4, he sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her, for she was cleansed from her impurity, and she returned to her house. And so David sent for her, she came to him. The indication, the way that it's worded here, is that she came to him with no resistance, she came to him freely. And so they, they commit adultery here, and it says in verse 4 that she was cleansed from her impurity. What the Bible is telling us here in verse 4 is that she had just had her menstrual period and was not pregnant when she had relations with David. So now, verse 5, and the woman conceived, so she sent and told David and said, I am with child. So what the scriptures is clearly telling us is that this is David's child as he committed adultery with her. He probably thought, this is over with. This is done. And all of a sudden, he gets a message that I'm with child. In verse 6, And David sent to Joab, saying, Send me Uriah the Hittite, that is her husband. And Joab sent Uriah to David. And Uriah had come to him. David asked how Joab was doing and how the people were doing and how the war prospered. And David said to Uriah, Go down to your house and wash your feet. So Uriah departed from the king's house, and a gift of food from the king followed him. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord and did not go down to his house. So when they told David, saying, Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, Did you not come from a journey? And why did you not go down to your house? And Uriah said to David, The ark of Israel and Judah are dwelling in tents, and my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are encamped in the open fields. Shall I then go to my house and eat and drink and to lie with my wife as you live and, and as your soul lives? I will not do this thing. So instead of repenting David, he, instead of confessing it, he's going to try to hide his sin here with Bathsheba. Now, keep in mind that under the law, that David and Bathsheba could be stoned to death. You remember in John chapter 8 that the religious leader brought that woman caught in the very act of adultery, and they threw her down before Jesus, and they said, we caught this woman in the very act of adultery, and Moses says that she should be stoned. What do you say? And they were right. The problem was that he was to be stoned too. And it was a setup by the religious leaders because if you caught her in the very act, then where is he? So both could have been stoned according to the law. And here David is trying to cover it up. He, he isn't going to confess it. Hey, I'll send for Uriah. And so he'll go home. And David says, you know, Uriah, go home. You know, have a nice evening with your wife. Here's a, a nice gift basket. And David probably thought the problem solved. And all of a sudden, the word comes back that Uriah didn't go. He slept at the door of the king's house and all the servants. And David is thinking, what is wrong with this guy? I mean, is he crazy? He's got a beautiful wife. He came back from the war. Why didn't he do it? And I'll tell you why he didn't do it. Because Uriah was a man of godly character and godly integrity. And he showed it. And he said, I am not going to go home. Uriah is probably thinking, David, why did you even send for me? 
And I just wonder if he's thinking, David, why aren't you out there with us? And here is David, a man that we have seen, a man after God's own heart, a man who has displayed such godly character and integrity and honesty. All of a sudden, that all goes out. You see, that's the problem with sin. And when you hide it, all that goes out the window. You can't live your life if you're hiding sin and involved in sin in godly integrity and honesty and character. You can't do it. And here's Uriah. He says, I am not going to go home. Not when Joab and the troops are out there in the field. I am not going to do that thing. To him it was sin. So David says, hmm, i got to come up with plan B. Then David said to Uriah, wait here, verse 12, today also, and tomorrow I will let you depart. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. Now when David called him, he ate and drank before him, and he made him drunk. And at evening he went out to lie on the bed and with the servants of his Lord and did not go down to his house. So he decides, I'll, I'll get him drunk. And then he'll go back home and he'll play nice with Bathsheba. But that plan doesn't work as well. Again, David, he's trying to cover the sin. He ignores the sin and he does it for several months. He hides the sin. And he doesn't repent. And so he says, okay, plan C Verse 14, in the morning it happened as David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. Notice that. And he wrote in the letter saying, set Uriah in the forefront of the hottest battle and retreat from him that he may be struck down and die. So it was while Joab besieged the city that he assigned Uriah to a place where he knew there was a a valiant man. And then the men of the city came out and fought with Joab, and some of the people, the servants of David, fell, and Uriah the Hittite died also. So plan C, David is desperate right now. He's determined, listen, Uriah, he's not going to go to his wife Bathsheba. He is going to only be interested in, in staying with the servants, going back to battle, so I need to get rid of him. And what he does is he writes a letter to Joab. And he writes this letter giving him some instructions. I want you, as the letter says, Uriah, verse 15, in the hottest part of the battle, retreat from him that he may be struck down and die. I wonder what Joab thought when he read that. But here's the thing, verse 14, look at it, it says again, he sent it by the hand of Uriah. Uriah, as he's carrying this letter to Joab, Uriah carries his own death sentence. That's how wicked this act is. This is how bad the sin is of of David that he's committing. And even though David is planning here, arranging Uriah's death, it would be seemingly hidden by this battle that's taken place. But Uriah was murdered just as sure as if David had done it himself. And so David plots this. G. Campbell Morgan said this concerning this chapter. In the whole of the Old Testament literature, there is no chapter more tragic or full of solemn and searching warning warning than this chapter. And we see what can happen. Here is a man who has a heart after God and that progression of sin as he saw her, as he beheld her, as he inquired of her. He said, I want her. He sent for her. And then all of a sudden there's consequences of sin. So I'm going to hide that sin. I'm not going to confess it. I'm going to try to cover it up. And he gets more desperate and he gets more desperate and he gets more desperate. And all of a sudden his scheming and planning becomes more wicked. And David here plans Uriah's death. So verse 18, Joab sent and told David all the things concerning the war and charged the messenger saying, when you have finished telling the matters of the war to the king, if it happens that the king's wrath rises and he says to you, why do you approach so near to the city when you fought? Did you not know that they would shoot from the wall? Who struck Abimelech, the son of uh, Jerubsheth, Was it not a woman who cast a piece of a millstone on him from the wall so that he died in Thesbes? Why did you not go? Why did you go near the wall? Then you shall say your servant, Uriah the Hittite, is dead also. And so here was the message that that was to be given to David. The messenger goes back and tells them, you know, there was a fierce battle. And Joab instructs the messenger that if David, you know, starts to say that why 
did Joab do that? You know, a bad military move to get so close to the wall. And David makes reference to Judges chapter 9. Abimelech, you recall, he was an evil man. And Abimelech, he was one that killed all of Gideon's family and set himself up as judge. And he was a terrible man. And, and he was trying to burn down this tower. As you read Judges chapter 9 in verses 50 through 56, he's trying to burn this tower down. And this lady up in the tower drops his millstone on his head. So Joab says that David makes reference to that. Hey, we learn from that. You don't get too close to the wall. You just tell them that Uriah the Hittite is dead. That's what you tell him. It's a code word. Mission accomplished. Uriah is dead. So verse 22, So the messenger went and came and told David all Joab had sent by him. And the messenger said to David, Surely the men prevailed against us and came out to us in the field. Then we drove them back as far as the entrance of the gate. And the archers shot from the wall at your servants. And some of the king's servants are dead. And your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. So the messenger just tells David, Hey, Uriah is dead. And so verse 25, David said to the messenger, Thus you shall say to Joab, Don't let this thing displease you, for the sword devours one as well as another strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow it so encourage him so david's response once he hears that uriah is dead just tell joab the sword devours one as well as the other in other words things happen things happen stuff happens tell joab go ahead take over the city and it just seems so callous david here his heart has been hardened as Uriah is killed, I finally got rid of him. He's probably thinking the problem is solved. And when Uriah, Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she mourned for her husband. And when her mourning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. The last word of the chapter Lord, it's the first time God's mentioned in this chapter. And it says that he was displeased with David. You know, to the people at this time, David looked, you know, like such a mighty king. He looked as good to the people as a great warrior. Maybe even seen as one that takes care of his men's widows when killed in battles. But God knows truly the story. And I just want to say that if any of us have sin in our heart or involved in sin, you may look good to others maybe. You may be hiding it. You may be able to cover it up. You be, may be thinking, I'm just going to ignore it. Maybe to others, your family, to friends, to coworkers, whoever it might be, maybe you seem like you're a good guy. You seem like you're you know, a really good gal. You know, they're a good person. They're doing good things. Everything seems to be okay. But know this, you can't hide it from the Lord. And the Lord sees. So any of us, if anybody happens to be here tonight, that there is sin that is in your life, you're playing around with sin. He sees it and he's displeased with it. And he's displeased with it because he hates sin. He doesn't hate the sinner. But he hates sin. And he hates what it does to you and to the people that you love. And he says to you, don't hide it, but confess it and repent. And that's what David should have done. But he's going to hide it for about nine months now. Probably thinking it's over. Probably thinking this will just pass. But the Lord knew what was going on, even though the other people didn't. Joab knew something was going on. But the rest of the people didn't. But the Lord knew and he was displeased with it. The Lord is displeased with us when we're involved in, in sinful activity. And he sees it, and he wants us to confess it and repent and turn to him. So now we're going to see, just for a few moments here, we're going to see that Nathan's going to confront David. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. Now, Nathan, we have seen, was one that ministered to David. And I just want to say this, that sometimes the Lord will send us to go and, and talk to somebody, maybe to confront them with their sin, to bring rebuke and correction, and Nathan does this, and he does it in a very wise way. And the thing about if the Lord ever uses you to remember that your motive should be for repentance and for restoration, not just to blast them. 
And the thing about accountability and the thing about being used of the Lord to bring correction, that there needs to be godly wisdom involved in it. There needs to be the right motive that you want to see that person turn to the Lord and, and receive that correction to where they repent and there were, there's restoration. But there has to be also, there has to be that relationship where that person can look at you and say, that is a man of God or that is a woman of God that I know that they're going to give me the word of God. And they care about me. Not that you're just there to condemn and be a know-it-all and all of this. They might think that when you're not doing that. But do they know that you truly care about them and that you're going to give them the word of God and they're going to receive you a whole lot better? And Nathan was that kind of man to David. And Nathan's going to be bold here as he speaks to David. But he tells him a story here as verse 1 again. And he came to David and said to him, There were two men in one city, one rich and the other poor. And the rich man had exceedingly many flocks and herds. But the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb, which he had bought and nourished. And it grew up, uh, it grew up together with him and with his children. It ate of his own food and drank from his own cup and lay in his bosom. And it was like a daughter to him. And a traveler came, verse 4, to the rich man who refused to take from his own flock and from his own herd to prepare one for the wayfaring man who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and he prepared it for the man who had come to him. So here is Nathan tells David, David, as he comes up with this supposed story, David, there's a problem. There's a rich man and a poor man. The rich man has many flocks of herds of lambs, and he has a visitor come, and instead of going to his flocks and taking one of these lambs to, to prepare a meal for him, he goes over to the poor man's house. He takes his only you know, lamb, this ewe lamb, and he steals it from him, takes it from him. This, this lamb was like a daughter to this guy. And Nathan, as he's speaking this, of course, it's going to be a story that, that applies to David. And as David hears that story, I can just imagine David, his countenance getting you know, angry, his face is turning red. And David's anger, verse 5, was greatly aroused against the man. And he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this shall surely die, and he shall restore fourfold for the lamb, because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Amazing, isn't it? David, in his anger, condemns this, the, the cruel rich man's action. Now, we do know from the law that if you took another man's animal, that you were to restore that man, you know, that person fourfold. That is, you were to, if you took a lamb from them, you were to give them four lambs back. That was the law. But it was not punishable by death if you stole somebody's animal. But David here is so angry, and he sounds so righteous in his anger. He says, as the Lord lives, we see that he says, that man shall surely die. And here was David ready to apply God's word and what he thought to be just to this man's life, but he was ignoring it in his own life. It was Jesus that said in Matthew chapter 12, by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. And by David's words, he's condemning himself. David had no pity for Uriah. Uriah, who had Bathsheba, and I believe that he was a man that loved his wife very much. Just as Nathan is telling, this man loved this, this lamb. He, it was such an important part of his life. And Bathsheba was all that Uriah had and such an important part of you know, his life. He loved her. And David, you who have everything rich and blessed by the Lord, you have many wives and concubines. And you took Uriah's wife. And that's what David or Nathan is going to bring out to David. David is about to be condemned by his own words. As verse 7, then Nathan said to David, you are the man. That took a lot of courage for Nathan to say that to the king. He, I think Nathan looked him right in the eyes and said, David, you are the man. You are the man. You are that man. And I imagine that when David heard that, it must have been like a, you know, a ton of bricks hit him all in one second. Uh-oh, I am busted. 
uh-oh, Nathan knows. All of a sudden, he's confronted with this sin. And I believe that even though David was ignoring this sin for the last nine months or ten months, he'd been, you know, trying to cover it up. He had planned wickedly that it was weighing heavy on him. And all of a sudden, Nathan says, you're the man, David. You are that man. And he's going to continue to speak to him. And it's like, bam, it must have hit David. When you read Psalm 32, let me read it to you in verses 3 and 4. And you can turn there if you want, but I'm going to read it to you. But David talks about the joy of forgiveness, and he's talking about being forgiven. But he talks in verses 3 and 4 of Psalm 32 what was happening to him when he was being convicted. He says, When I kept silent, my bones grew old through my groaning all the day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was turned into the drought of summer. And then he says, I acknowledge my sin to you. In my iniquity I have not hidden. I said I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. But David said, as I kept silent, my bones grew old. He was groaning. I think that David was so heavily convicted during those, those months. That's what he's writing about. It's that my bones hurt. Oh, he was groaning. He was being convicted, but he was trying to suppress that. And all of a sudden, Nathan says, you're the man, David. You are that man. And he goes on and he says that, thus says the Lord God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and I deliver you from the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your keeping and gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if that had been too little, I also would have given you much more. And why have you despised the commandment of the Lord to do evil in his sight. You have killed Uriah the Hittite with the sword. You have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the people of Ammon. Now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me. You have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. So David, I anointed you to be the king of Israel. David, I delivered you from the hand of Saul. David, I have blessed you and I have given you. And David, I would have given you so much more if you would not have done wickedly, but you've despised the commandment of the Lord, David. And we need to realize how much the Lord has blessed us, how he has saved us, and how the Lord has delivered us from sin, and how the Lord, every good gift comes from above. And the Lord wants to do so much in our lives, but what happens is is that we can end up falling into sin, committing sin, straying away. And the Lord is saying, oh, I want to do so much. David, I would have done more in your life if that would have been too little, but you've despised the commandment of the Lord. And whenever we despise the commandment of the Lord, we miss out on so much. You see, despising the commandments of the Lord will lead you to sin. And there are consequences, David, that you're going to experience. Verse 11. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up adversity against you from your own house, and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son. For you did it secretly. Well, I will do this thing before all Israel, before the son. So David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, The Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. However, because by this deed you have given great occasion of the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme, the child also who is born to you shall surely die. Then Nathan departed to his house. And so it is David that said, I have sinned. I have sinned against the Lord. Now you may be thinking, why does David seem like he's being forgiven? Why didn't the Lord say, David, because you have done this, I want to take the kingdom from you like he did with Saul. And sometimes people, when they read about the sin of Saul who didn't kill all the Amalekites, who offered the the sacrifice that was unlawful for him to do there in chapter 13 of 1 Samuel, people think, you know, Saul, he looked pretty good compared to David, what he just got through doing here in chapter 11. So why is he being told you're forgiven, David, even though there's going to be adversity in your home, there's going to be bloodshed, we're going to see that and read all about this, what was told to David. The son that you're going to have with Bathsheba is going to die, David. But you're forgiven, David. You see, the big difference between Saul and David, when Saul would say, I have sinned, when he said that to Samuel the prophet there in 1 Samuel chapter 15, 
that Samuel came to Saul and said, The kingdom has been torn from you, Saul, and given to another man after God's own heart. And it was Saul that said, I have sinned, but now bless me before the people. David here said, I have sinned before the Lord. I have sinned before the Lord. And you can read Psalm 51, and you can see how David truly repented. I have sinned before the Lord. Saul said, I have sinned, but bless me now before the people. He just was only concerned about looking good before the people. He didn't truly repent. I get people sometimes that will come in my office, and they'll say, well, I've done this, and I've done that, and I've committed this sin. I have sinned. They'll admit it, but they really haven't repented. They're not sorry for their sin. They haven't really come into agreement with the Lord. And that's what confession means. They come in agreement, Lord, that this is wrong. And Lord, I've done wrong. I've sinned against you. And I confess it. So God is convicting David here. But one more thing that I just want to point out, and then we'll go to prayer. Nathan said, even though you're forgiven, David, you've caused the enemies of God to blaspheme his name. And I think that when David heard that, that broke David's heart. Because David loved the Lord. He was a man after God's own heart. You know, the sad thing about when Christian leaders sin, sometimes we can hear it in the news, we see it plastered in the newspapers or whatever, or if anyone who is a Christian and declares to be a Christian, and then they end up sinning, There's forgiveness for us, but here's the consequence, one of them, and that is it causes the enemies of God to blaspheme his name. It causes people to say, you're a Christian, you're no different than the rest of us. You're no different than the rest of us. I am very thankful that there is forgiveness, that we confess our sins. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Praise God for that. But we need to remember this, Christians, that when we proclaim to be a Christian and when we are, you know, saying that to a world, but yet we fall into sin and we try to cover it and we try to hide it, it causes the enemies of God to blaspheme his name. And I pray that we would say, Lord, please help me, help me never to go there because I want to honor your name. I want to bless your name. Oh, I'm thankful for forgiveness. But remember, that's one of the consequences. Not just with the people that we hurt, but the people that will look at us and say, you know what? You Christians. And it's unfortunate that it happens because Christians do sin. And we're not perfect, but we're perfectly forgiven. But know that that is a consequence. David, you've caused the enemies of God to blaspheme his name. And it broke David's heart. And I pray that we would say tonight, Lord, I want to be one that I want to represent you the best that I can. I know I'm not perfect, but listen, tonight, if there's anything in your heart, anything at all, that is not right, or maybe you're beholding something that is not pleasing to the Lord, maybe you're starting to inquire of it, then you need to confess it. If you're hiding anything, if you're trying to ignore sin, take it to the Lord. And allow the Lord to minister to you, confess it, turn to him, receive his forgiveness and his love. And Father, that's our prayer here tonight. We see this, this tragic chapter of David as the progression of sin in his life. And Lord, we know that as Christians that we can fall into the same thing if we're not careful, if we get complacent, if we get to that place where we're just beholding things that we shouldn't, and then we're inquiring of it, and then, Lord, we, we want it. Father, I do pray tonight for us that if there is any of us that are here tonight, that, Lord, as we take this time right now to just present our hearts to you, that if there's anything in your heart that, that you know is not right with the Lord, he sees And tonight, in the honesty of your heart, if you say, Lord, I know that this is displeasing to you, that you would just confess it right now. Don't go any longer beholding it or inquiring of it or participating in it. 
and you confess it before the Lord, don't ignore it, don't hide it. Don't plot and plan how you might try to get around it, but you confess it. The Lord loves you so much. And the Lord wants to forgive you and to do a restorative work in your life. Don't go in that direction, he says, that's going to cause harm. Don't think it's just about you or nobody's going to find out because your sin will find you out. And if we sow seeds of corruption, the scripture says that a harvest will come up. We will reap unto the flesh corruption. But if we reap unto the Spirit, of the Spirit will reap everlasting life. So Lord, please help us to sow those seeds of the Spirit and walk in the Spirit. And your word says that we will not fulfill the desires of our flesh. Lord, tonight, if anyone here is confessing that, that you would minister to their hearts, they would know that there is forgiveness. And they would repent. And, and Lord, they would turn to you right now. If it's looking on things that you shouldn't be looking on, if it's relationship that is wrong, if it is being dishonest, if it's living a lie, then give it to the Lord and confess it. But don't continue in it. Father, we're so thankful that we can learn these lessons that even when we who love you are warned what can happen to us if we get complacent? If we're looking and beholding things that are not of you or pleasing to you. May we be ones that continue to just gaze upon you and your glory, Lord, and then everything else will grow strangely dim in the light of your glory and grace. And to behold you, Lord, and stay close to you. Father, help us husbands to love our wives that they are the love of our lives. To be committed to them. And Lord, that there be purity in the marriage relationship. That eyes wouldn't wonder and we would be like Job, that I'm not going to set my eyes before that, which is pleasing, not pleasing to you, Lord. But I'm going to behold the Lord, as David would say. And I'm not going to be looking at others. I'm not going to inquire of, of that individual. I'm, I'm not going to go on that computer web page. I'm going to stay away from it. I want to honor you, Lord. Because we know that there's so many images, Lord, in this world that bombard us all the time. And Lord, we need to stay close to you and renew our minds and meditate on the things that are true and noble and pure and just and praiseworthy. Father, that our hearts would be right before you. We would present our hearts before you and say, Lord, search and try me and see if there be any wicked.